one thing I've appreciated, how Dr. Strickland has kind of been teaching us is he's, he's giving both the positives and the negatives. He's trying to give a comprehensive, a, a broad view of things, which kind of helps us set the playing field and then it helps us then narrow down and make our questions more specific. He's done a very good job that way. I know the color blindness is very helpful for me um, in terms of, and also the structural and the individual uh, views of, um, of racism. So, so we've got some time for some questions. I'm going to start out with just one or two to seed the conversation and get going. And then uh, maybe we haven't asked you to write them down, so maybe you can just raise your hands. I know we have a lot of questions considering the nature of the times we live in. Mm. And, uh, and so you can raise your, raise your hands and then, and then he'll field the questions and I'll, I'll mm -hmm. listen with you. So a, a couple questions just on, the, um, uh, on some of the things you were saying. is How much should history play into the issue of racism? So to a people who haven't participated in that history per se, mm -hmm. how, does ra how does history play into that? How, how much should that have? Uh, at the table of the discussion. Yeah, which that, that's a great and very, very complex question, and the answer is things that people write dissertations on. So I'll do my best in two minutes. Sure. You'll <laughs> do fine. So it, it should inform um, the, the discussion in a very powerful way because, as I was sort of alluding to earlier, um, our history gives us, I'll use these, this term, ruts in which we find ourselves. And it gives us, so a lot more is caught than taught, as the old adage goes. And so as, as I learn from my parents things, you learn from your parents different things. And a lot of what we have just learned from our parents and those around us, because we often live around those who are like us, uh, it sort of um, gives us, assumptions about how the world works. And so a lot of that is based on history. Um, and then so understanding how that history has influenced me and understanding how, um, so both emotionally, um, even how the, the Christian faith sort of has grown up in this sort of soil that we talked about the last time um, that is responding to the realities of, of, this, of this life. Um, so those are very real things, but then also understanding how uh, history has sort of played a part in the economic disparities that we see amongst us now. And then what that sort of does to, like, to us psychologically as well. So there's, you know, there's, I was talking to um, a friend of mine who is a pastor out in Atlanta. And he, um, there's areas that are, where, there, where there's gentrification going on. And so there's a big housing project right outside of, of one you know, side of the, the uh, church, and then there's some really, really expensive condos just right down the way. So they're trying to figure out how do we interact with both people. And so he was sort of comparing and contrasting the two. And he says, well, for one group, there is nothing that they can't do. The, the sky is the limit and what have you. But then for the other group, there's a sort of victimology, that this sort of a victim mentality, sort of like I need to keep all my stuff next to me because someone's going to take it away. And so that really does play into a lot of how we interact with each other, uh, a lot of how we um, even think about jobs and college. You know, I can't spend money on college because I have to keep all that I have here. I'm paying somebody but not really receiving anything from it, just information, knowledge. That doesn't make any sense. And so this really plays into a lot of 
the um, a lot that goes on. So, I guess taking a step back, should history inform the conversation? You betcha, and it does. Is it an excuse wholesale for our actions? Always, no. I was also thinking the personal history as well and the corporate history that, that mm -hmm. we're affected by. Okay, one quick question. Not, it won't be quick, but it should be quicker. Would, would Martin Luther King have pulled down statues as, as kind of um, trying to bring the racial issue to a public forum? Huh. Seeing how that's a question that he didn't really have to answer. So uh, I, I, would, I would say... I would wager that he probably would not have, because of his his um, yeah his civil disobedience not involving breaking the law or trying to be passive civil disobedience. Yeah, so so he had uh, nonviolent direct action was right. the methodology that he used, and so there was um, those who were doing direct action that was not nonviolent, which a lot of those were the Black Panthers and other groups, um, uh, Nation of Islam, and and what have you, like Stokely right. Carmichael and Malcolm X, but he was nonviolent direct action. So for him, whenever he did anything, there was a very strategic thing that he was after. Mm -hmm. So when they walked across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, he was after a very specific sort of, um, uh, he, he was trying to take down a very specific law or a very specific, you know, if you guys saw the movie, there's a, the voting is what it was all about about suffrage across the lines of race so he was marching for that issue and when he was told that that issue was resolved because of the civil disobedience he would say okay we're done let's go home and then let's regroup let's figure out what the next sort of thing is that we need to sort of take down of this racial superstructure right. and then we'll sort of move forward so he was very he was very um strategic in his leadership um one thing I do see as a difference now, and in contrast with then, is that then, because uh, the, the uh, media and, and information flowed the way it did, um, now we, see, we don't see a clear leader of these things that are going on. You have people who are pulling down statues in Durham. Well, who are, who are those people? Hmm. Uh, who was who their leader? Um, people who are, doing, you know, who are responding in Charlottesville. Well, who is their leader? I mean, so... So something like a Black Lives Matter is really sort of like a hashtag that people can, via social media, sort of do with it what they please. And it sort of begins to mean all sorts of different things. Right. Uh, and then now, like in Durham, you had people who were, uh, who were white who were there mm -hmm. primarily pulling down the statue. And so uh, it's, it's a very, very different era. And so, but I would think that he would not have done that because it would have brought... Um, it would have clouded the ends to which he was after. Right. And that's helpful. Mm -hmm. um, one other question, and then we'll, we'll move to the group, is with the um, theologian who quoted that blacks need to forgive and whites need to repent. So what do blacks need to forgive? Because that, those statements are, and what do whites need to repent in terms of, those statements are memorable, but they can be so broad mm -hmm. that they lose value because we're wondering, well, as Christians, we want to repent over sins committed against God and others. Mm -hmm. and, and forgiveness is against those, or it's granted to those who have sinned against us. So, so tease that expression <clears throat> out a little bit for us. Yeah, so um, 
there's sins of omission and commission. Yeah. I think oftentimes when we think about racism, we think about the word said, you know, about somebody or about a group, you know. Um, those things, if we've said them, uh, they need to be repented of. But I think far more these days than the uh, sin of commission, it's the, the sin of omission. Seeing the sufferings of our brothers and sisters and doing absolutely nothing about it. I think that right there is the thing that uh, needs to be um, forgiven, yeah. especially if we're talking about, if you look at, um, to go historic, because this, that time parallels ours in some unique ways, in a really weird sense. If you look back at um, the Billy Graham Crusades, like he would go into stadiums, like in, in Alabama, <clears throat> in Birmingham, I think he had a, a, um, an event there where he allowed the the groups to be segregated. So he had whites on the on the ground and and on the lower levels, and then blacks up top. And so, and that was of his own. Uh, desire to allow the law of the land to uh, be as it was. He could have overruled that if he wanted to, but he, you know, just took the path of least resistance. That is a, I think, an act of um, of commission, of, of omission in a sense, that he didn't take that step. And so that could be a point of contention. Yeah. It could be a point of um, uh, just a root of bitterness in a real sense. And so, granted, all of you guys aren't planning crusades where thousands of people are going to be there, but there's things that we could have done for our brother and sister. There's a burden that we could have borne that is theirs that we have just chosen to turn a deaf ear to and a blind eye toward. And I think that's where the forgiveness comes. Yeah. Um, so, so kind of asking ourselves, what have we, if we haven't done anything overtly, then what have we not done productively? Mm -hmm. Okay, it's good. Okay, how about others? Here. Yes. Can I just follow that up with this question? Uh -huh. um, so white people need to repent and black people need to forgive, but is there a place for black people to repent and white people to forgive? I mean, is that the reality? Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's reality. Because um, th there is, um, that is a profound question that, <laughs> so, there's some who would say that a black person cannot be racist. And if we only looked at sort of structural realities and the way that they work themselves out in America, I can see how someone can potentially get to that point. But there is individual racism that a person, a black person can have against a white person as well. And so I, I do think that there's space to, for a black person to repent and forgive, um, and, and then vice versa. <clears throat> but the way that J.D. Otis Roberts said it is because, you know, he was, a, he was a, in his context in 71, and he was looking out and saying, these are the things that often are never done, and they both need to be done one to another. And for him, it was for the purpose of racial reconciliation, which is a sort of image and picture of the beloved community, which is a kingdom, as Martin Luther King would talk about, this beloved community. And J.D. Otis Roberts was like a a fan of King, and so he would use that similar language. He says, if we're ever going to get there, at least these two things need to be done. But I do agree with you in that, be because, you know, I can have a root of bitterness or harbor something against anybody, just as well as, you know, the other way around. And so, yeah, I, I do think that's a, um, something we do need to take hold of and examine ourselves about. 
Uh, we'll go right here, then in the back, then up here. Um, this might be a big question, but with the idea that diversity is beautiful and then the church should be unified, mm -hmm. what does that look like in the local church? Like worship styles, like teaching, you know, the idea that diversity is really beautiful and having those different styles. Yeah, yeah. Man, that is a big question. The, the, I'm actually guaranteed to teach a whole class to answer that question. And so, <laughs> there's like whole books written on it, you know, with like part one and part two and part three. So, um, so th this, this, is, this is what we often think of. So, yes, I think the body of Christ is most, you know, local bodies of Christ most accurately reflect the kingdom when, we, when it is diverse. Um, on a radio show, like live, I was asked by someone I counted as a friend. Do you, oh, I still count him as a friend. I'm tongue-in-cheek. He says, are churches that are all black or all white, are they in sin? And I was like, dude, you don't, what? <laughs> you, put, you put me in a pickle, man. And so, <laughs> and so I sidestepped it like any good politician would. And so I said, well, I think there's a missed opportunity to demonstrate this kingdom that we're after sort of trying to make manifest now. Um, and when we try to live in, like, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in, in an environment that's diverse, I think it's good for us not to completely lose who God has made us. Because after all, you know, it's, um, we're not trying to become this mush. We're, we're trying to become like gumbo. With gumbo, you got all sorts of elements in it. Did I, did I give the gumbo illustration last time? Oh, good stuff. So we, we don't want to lose our integrity, like, at, and not our integrity, like this is like a moral thing, but we don't want to lose who God has made us because that's a beautiful thing too. And then, so for, for example, like, I think last time we talked about, okay, well, should Pastor Tom start preaching like H.B. Charles? Please don't, because that's not you. And should H.B. Charles start preaching like you? No, I, I, would, I would hope not. But it would be fantastic if there was people who were from different backgrounds began to use their gifts in a real way in the church. And so, so, it, and it's, not, so it's not that you have one person who's doing it all, like singing all the songs and, you know, or playing all the songs or, or whatever it might be. So, well, there's p different people who have different gifts. They then come and begin to diversify the, the songs and the teaching and what have you. And then, you know, um, because there's, you know, diversity, young and old is a part of that, um, socioeconomic status. But then you get into race and culture and class and stuff like that. So there's all types of diversity that we're after. And so it might be that, you, you should take some pressure off yourselves, at least in the beginnings of, you know, making the church more diverse. Um, and that, hey, we should just work with the diversity of what we have right now. And then by God's grace, we'll continue to expand that as we, you know, have this vision of the kingdom as our, as our goal. And so, um, yes, individual churches should look, try to look like that. But let's not make it a mush pot where we just lose ourselves and become this gelatinous sort of like bleh, like, cream of wheat, because that's just nasty anyway, and, uh, but, but, we, but we do want to sort of keep who we are and begin to season the pot with who God has made us, and then allow our unity in Christ 
to really be the thing that holds us together and not the fact that we are homogenous, which is like the same. So, yeah, the back. Um, within the system, there's probably a number of things I think about these self-perpetuating patterns like poverty. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also like institutionalized stuff like voting laws, right? Um, I'm curious to know if there are things that you think remain in the institutional realm Oh man, you guys are like, these are great questions, but they're like, so, there's so much that's there. Um, yes, there are things that still remain, uh, and, and the only reason why. So, just to 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 begin to sort of couch all of this is that we're we're saying so. Part part of what I was trying to speed through in that process was that oftentimes we exist in structures that were built by people that advantage some and disadvantage others, and we just sort of exist in them without changing the structure, but we're sort of complicit in the way that those structures advantage and disadvantage because we haven't changed them. Not that the individuals are intending to be racist or biased or what have you, but because we just sort of say, hey, I'm just going to continue to do what was done and try to do it better and better, but inherent within the way that things have been done is this bias. So oftentimes we don't even think about changing the structures. We just, we just sort of exist in them. And so um, let's see. I'll use my own school as an example. Okay. So Dr. Aiken, phenomenal leader. He um, and is a great man of God, by the way. So he, after 10 years, he said, you know what, Walter, I've been trying to you know, diversify our school for the longest time. He says, you know, I keep putting all this energy into it, and he was putting a lot of energy into welcoming new students and welcoming pastors to begin to trust our school and what have you. And so uh, he said, but, you know, I feel like I just keep going and going and going, but nothing's happening. I said, well, there's a lot of things in how our school was made in 1950 that perpetuate the presence of those who have always been here and so your effort to run this way and the, and the structure's pushing you this way and you got net zero. And so what we had to do is begin to revisit sort of like the things that, okay, how do our policies and structures and practices go? Like, for example, we said, hey, the good people in the Southern Baptist Convention, they give a lot of money so that students can come and have a subsidized education so, it's, so we're not riddled with debt. Because you guys know that pastors don't get rich when they get out of seminary, so they can't have all this debt. And so the, the Southern Baptist Convention says, hey, we're going to help out with the school, schooling for our, our, our future pastors and leaders. And so, but, which is a great thing. Amen for that, because I'm a beneficiary of that, so thank you all. Um, but if, if we're saying that, hey, we want to sort of diversify the leadership in the church, we want to try to bring people in who don't look like the average Southeasterner, you know, and when he first got there, and what would have been, what would have been like 2004, then what we find out is that the demographics that we're trying to welcome in, who are baptistic in their theology, yet are different races and backgrounds, they're two and three, three times less wealthy as those who are there. And so, I know that I'm like going on this trail, but we're almost there. We almost arrived. We were scholarshipping those who statistically had more resources and were having those who don't have those resources pay twice as much to come to the school. So it, it wasn't like that was like a vicious sort of jab against like 
people coming into the school as you know non-white Southern Baptists, but it was just prohibitive. And so, again, it perpetuated those who were there, and it disadvantaged those who were not there, but it wasn't like an intentional sort of like, we hate you, stay out sort of the thing. So there's things like that that happen a lot that are fairly benign, but the effect is segregation oftentimes. So anyway, I, I hope that's a way to... It's a, and the thing is, as we begin to sort of tease through our workplaces, as we begin to look at the, the sort of procedures and the processes that we might be uh, um, in authority over at the workplace or at the church or what have you, we, we, you know, things might begin to pop up that we say, you know what, I think, that, I think we can you know, tweak this and it would really help support this sort of kingdom vision of every Tritonian nation uh, in that workplace or in that church or what have you. And so I use that one in particular to say, again, it wasn't like a vicious thing. It's a very well-intended gesture by Southern Baptists, but it was working against a goal that we set out, which, to, which was to become a more diverse denomination. So, yes. Uh, thank you, Dr. Strickland, for coming tonight. Uh, you mentioned in your talk, uh, at one point you, re- you referenced the events in Charlottesville, mm-hmm. and uh, you mentioned the, uh, the statue deal in, uh, in Durham. Um, I- I'm really curious uh, on uh, what, as an African-American uh, from Chicago, if I heard that mm-hmm. correctly. In California, both. Okay. Mm-hmm. So neither state inside anything that would have been part of the Confederacy mm-hmm. once upon mm-hmm. statue commemorating leadership from the South affects you? Does it affect you? And if so, how? That's a very good question. Um, Just like viscerally, I sort of get this like uh, it's it's very awkward. Um, I'm wondering who around me is for that and if I'm safe. That's my visceral sort of, oh my goodness. So, like, you know, am, am I, like, seriously, am, am I safe? Especially my, with, with my family makeup, because it's what's worse than being an African American man is being married to a white woman and having children. Because mixed race kids are just seen as, like, I mean, to people who are very, you know, sort of supremacist in their orientation, like, that's the worst thing is to be in a mixed race family. And so that, that's, what, that's, that's, what, that's where I go immediately, is my, my safety, my, myself, my family. But I guess the question on the floor is, what do you do with that then? Like, what do you do with these statues? So um, I'll bring it even closer to home. At Southeastern Seminary, we have this building called Staley Hall, which is where the president's office is, and our provost, which is like the head of academics and the executive vice president for operations. So the, the three biggest, you know, the most powerful figures on our campus they're in a building that has a plaque that says, built by slaves in such and such a year, and this and this and this and this. And it was like sort of a celebrated thing. Hey, this building was built by slaves. We got it done for cheap. You know, so like, so I look at that plaque and I'm like, huh. Because I'm a believer, and I believe that in the, in the reality of redemption, I think, this, this, is what I, this is what I'm going to suggest that we do. As a, as a, or we, as in like a, at Southeastern, is to not take it down, but put something over the top of it that sort of explains where, from where we've come and where we're, where we are now and where we're going. And so, um, in in our country, I would, 
if, if I was running things, I would keep the statues as they are, and then I would put something else next to it to say, okay, this is where we've come from, and this is where we want to go. But the thing is, in our society, that completely lacks any nuance, or ability to nuance, that, opp- that option doesn't exist. We, 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 we'll, you know, we'll, we will pull them down, we'll insist that, they be, that they're in museums. That's the second option, that they're in museums. We don't destroy them, but they're in museums, and we can learn from them. But I think, like, if, if, if I was, and, and, and by the way, I'd be very unpopular for this. And I would get shot at by both sides, which is basically my life. Because I, I do think, as a Christian, and I know we, we're over time now, uh, as a Christian, we have to leave space for the reality for God to do something. To take us from what we were, to change us, and to set us on a new course. So the scars, okay, I'm not, I'm not, now we're talking about salvation, so the scars from our sinful past are simply reminders of grace. And so, that's what I would hope for us to be able to do with the landscape of our nation as it reflects the, the past uh, that, that, we, that is ours because we can't forget the history um, because it's only in light of the history that we go forward. But going forward, hopefully, is with the idea of redemption in mind. And so I don't think we can do that. And, and I don't think that's going to happen in our culture because we're not going to think that carefully about it. Walter, wouldn't you also agree, uh, it was Charles Barkley who said, I think last week, he goes, nobody worried about the Confederate statues a week ago. They're pulling them down. But don't you think that there's something about, like with Calvin participating in Servetus being burned? I mean, there is that they were set in a time and a culture, and they as people were more than just slave owners, let's say. And so I do agree that just taking them down isn't really... I appreciate what your answer with Martin Luther King because there was a purpose and a goal that he was going for. Mm-hmm. When you saw the Durham statue come down, what was the purpose? I mean, what is advancing? How is it advancing racial reconciliation um, as opposed to just destruction of property, kind of a, like unchecked anger? And so the, um, the idea of trying to maintain a sense of history, but you're right, trying to understand history now with the lens of faith and time it kind of sets it in context as opposed to just some iconoclast. We're just going to destroy everything in the past. So that, that was helpful. Um, how about one or two more questions, and then we'll have some. Yes. To bring this even a little closer to home, mm-hmm. um, how do we, as, you know, I, I have kids at high school, college, um, kids, you know, one that's headed to the mission field. Mm-hmm.
make me cringe, and I'm sure I do the same thing. And yet, how do I prepare my family extensively mm-hmm. for that possibility? Yeah. Um, I'll tell you what my brother, my now brother-in-law did for me because my father-in-law was in the shoes of your extended family uh, when my wife brought me home. Uh, actually, when I was allowed to then come in their house because I wasn't for several months. Um, my brother-in-law, Sam, he says, Dad, this is the Bible that you taught me. This, this is what you said about people. And you're not treating Walter like this. You know, and he just let the question hang in the air. And then eventually it caught some traction. And so, if, because my, my first question was going to be, are they believers? And you said yes. And so, I mean, pray for them. Because I think that this is one of the most demonic strongholds in our country. And I believe, I believe that with all my heart. And we're seeing it bubble up again in a way that's profound. Like, and I'm thinking, are we in like 1965 or 63 or is this 2017? And the thing is, I thought about it for a moment. I said, you know what? I'm not surprised because the, the condition of humanity is the same. We're sinners. And so, and, and, and continually, we have to begin to call each other to a standard that's under Christ. And, and, and really demonstrating that to them in Scripture, um, being an example of that uh, as a family in your own like you know small family unit, welcoming those you know those young men and young women who are of different backgrounds to your dinner table, and just you know and by God's grace they're good people and just raving about like how awesome it is to just have them in your life because you know um, I, I think those testimonies go a long way. Um, and, and, I, and I just, yeah, and prayer is, is vitally important because, I mean, I, I do think that's spiritual warfare in a powerful sense. But I think it could be a potential, potential, a, a potential picture of grace, too. Like at my uh, rehearsal dinner, my father-in-law, he repented in front of everybody. So glory be to God for that. This guy's like the chief technology officer of an international bank. You know, he, he, he didn't ever have to say he's wrong. But he, but he did. Yeah. And so it, it was a very neat story. So there's, 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 there's hope, and, but my brother-in-law, my non-brother-in-law, was really just pointing back to the Bible. And so I would encourage you to do so as well. That's, that, that's very encouraging to kind of be a Nathan, if you will, you know, bringing to bear mm-hmm. the truth of God on the behavior of a person who claims a position with God it's not walking in it. Very powerful. God's spirit moves in that. One more question, then we're gonna we're gonna pray. Right. Oh. You, 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 you get to choose. Oh no! I, I want you to choose. Yeah. Who were they? No, no, no. <laughs> uh, let's let's go. Sherry, you you want to ask? <laughs> That's very kind of you. Who was the other person? Defining racism uh-huh. as um, personally individual or structuralist, uh-huh. I think you said, um, and to go quickly so I caught what I could, a matter of mm-hmm. thinking about words, thoughts, and actions towards one another. Yeah. Did I, did I miss something? Uh,
Yeah, I, I was saying that um, there are some who think that, especially minorities, cannot be racist. But you know, black people being like the the bookends of the conversation, the white black sort of uh, sort of extremes, if you will. Um, there's some who would say who are more of the structuralist understanding of racism and like structuralist to the exclusion of the individual. They might say, well, because the structures advantage uh, white people, well, then black people can't be racist. But then I would say, well, that's a that's only seeing even if I grant that being the case. Uh, and that's changing right now. But even if I um, grant someone, okay, all structures are, they disadvantage the minority and privilege the majority. So even if we said that that statement, which is not as true, is true, that discounts the fact that, you know, there is, there, there is a reality where black people can be individually racist and, and need to repent for that as well. So, um, and again, so that, I'm, I'm really glad we talked about the individual and systemic because, you know, again, some people are only see it as this, some people only see it as that, but in reality, they're both at play. Mm-hmm. Or wouldn't you say that the black would be suffering under racism with the systemic issue as opposed to feeling? Because everybody can be racist. Everybody, yeah, you know, yeah, the yeah. ethnocentrism, the mm-hmm. self-centeredness of people, and so because they're of the minority and they're the, they're the smaller group that they are more apt to suffer under it than, mm-hmm. the, than the white majority. Yeah. Um, thank you for coming out tonight. Walter, thank you for oh, your... Thanks for having me. The, the, you know, it's, it's helpful to hear with clarity, but also the experience. It's, it's a profound story about his marriage and with your uh, father-in-law. That, that, to me, had to be incredible for you, not just to repent, but to do it in a public way, um, instructive, helpful, and red- um, had to be massively redemptive. Yeah. I'm thankful you got to get there. I bet, I bet it was. I, well, I can't imagine, but uh, I trust you in that. Well, let, let's pray together, and then we have some food, and I'm sure he'll be open to handle Sherry's question. So, uh-huh. Well, Father, we, we do thank you uh, for tonight. Thank you for this dear brother who has come to uh, instruct us out of your word and out of the experience of your word in his life. And I pray that for us... Uh, well, I pray for him that he would feel the joy of being used by you and advancing your purposes in the hearts of your people. And I pray that he would be satisfied that this work which you have uh, prepared for him to do before the foundations of the world, that you've given him the spirit to do it and he's walked it out with joy and clarity. So thank you for him. And uh, thank you for how our hearts are drawn toward his in this. And Father, for us, I I pray, Lord, that this, again, would not be simply informational, but it would begin to uh, change the direction of our thoughts and our minds, that we would be active um, to not not benignly avoid uh, moving towards developing friendships, listening uh, to people of... of, uh, of color and and um, engaging in means of learning and uh, and building bridges for better understanding that we could be more useful for not just diversity but racial reconciliation that we would all be moving towards that uh, walking out what it means to be fully human and I pray that you would advance us for your glory and for our joy we pray this in the name of Jesus Amen.